Hello and welcome to today's episode of Not Defined by Endo. Today, I'll be speaking to Endo warrior and advocate Alex, who is sharing her story about her endometriosis. Alex, whose name literally means warrior, has been through a lot, including having a UTI from the age of seven. She had a hysterectomy and this did not stop her endometriosis symptoms and she's had to battle thoracic endometriosis after. Alex is now a couple months post-excision surgery and she's testament to the fact that a properly done excision surgery can drastically improve your quality of life when dealing with endometriosis. So sit back, relax, and let's have a listen. How are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very good to meet you. Yes, you too. I know, it's very sort of strange now that we can just contact someone on Instagram and say hello. It is. It's amazing. It makes the world feel less less big. Exactly. Yeah. And to be honest with you, I've met so many people. It's amazing, especially with endometriosis. Like seriously, yeah. it's it's a a blessing that we are able to connect with each other. And um, I don't, I don't even remember when I started following you, but I just saw your very yellow page, and I was like, oh, so cute. <laughs> Of yellow. <laughs> really, really good. So I saw your um one of your posts and I was just like I was happy that you had done your surgery and uh-huh. you were feeling good. And then I saw so it's a couple of your posts which we'll talk about. And I was like, oh my goodness, I need to speak to her because I felt the way as in I know that feeling, like when you said um you were just tired of like the whole awareness raising awareness and just constantly like an uphill battle and yeah. you need to keep reading you need to sometimes you're like what am i what do i even post today like, what do i know yeah. you know so that was really that really struck a chord um with me so well that's good yeah <laughs> <laughs> but well done well done on everything you're doing as well thank you yeah. yeah, I'm trying to slowly change things over here in Canada, but it'll take. Don't don't even, yeah. Just do you know what? Right now, I just know that every person we speak to, or you know, is enough because Nancy, she says she has been doing this for like thirty years, and it's still where it is. Like seriously, and she's made a lot of like she's covered a lot of ground. There's a lot of you know, things happening now. And, yeah. you know, we're all part of the journey, part of the race. So, yeah. We just And I think, honestly, like, yeah, because there's, like, your main hub of, like, the original advocate. So you have Nancy, you have Sally Sorrell, yeah. you have Lisa from um, Invisible Endo, and yeah. then you have, hang on, there's one more, Wendy Bingham. And yeah. so those are, like, your top four. Yeah. And they doing it for so long and it's fantastic and everything that they've done but they're also all coming to a point in age where I think they're just tired and then at the same point now that you have social media mm-hmm. and how much more the community has like you know expanded yeah over over the years and now we're t- you know before social media and the internet and all of that it's like the advocates could only 
only take care of like who's walking into the doctor's office. Yes, exactly. Whose address they have to mail stuff. Now it's it's all at your fingertips. Yeah. You know, like you're in the UK, I'm in Canada. There's people in the States, there's people in in Europe, in Africa, like everywhere. And we're all just intertwined and connected, sharing resources and information. Yeah. Like with Nancy saying, a lot of it's kind of stayed the same. I think, I think that in the next probably three to five years, there's probably going to be a shift just because of how much everything's happening now on social media. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's kind of a privilege that we're part of this and it's keeping us um, positive. I think it would be so much harder to be an advocate then than it is now. Definitely. Definitely. Yep. I'm like, (laughs) oh, I'm just, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. And it's like, Alex, you post things online. Like, it's really not that difficult. But it's so hard, though. It's so hard, like, thinking of, because you want it to be, you know, good, proven content. At the same time, you want it to be, like, if you notice mine, I don't even put myself, because I can't even be bothered. Like, I can't do (laughs) it. A lot of work. I just finding I, somebody in the middle of the day to take your picture yeah i just say you know what i'll just give information and i'll talk about my podcast and that's it i can't i just can't yeah. because we're still dealing with our own health issues as well just remember mm-hmm. so in our own lives so we can't you know do too i try uh, before i used to be like oh my god i need to post every day so that people can see people yeah. need to help oh my god trying to beat the algorithm seriously i was like like, you know what no i no i know i did the same thing i would post multiple i'd even post multiple times a day i would use i would search hashtags try and do this and try and do that and then it got to the point that i'm like you know what like if you want to follow me follow me exactly about you a bit more now okay yeah so can you just share your story right from the onset of your symptoms to where you are today that's a that's a big question (laughs) Um, (laughs) so my symptoms started when I was seven seven um I was seven wow so uh, at the age of yeah so I was seven I had chronic recurrent UTIs. I would get um, a bladder infection every six to eight weeks from the moment I was seven until I was 25. And so I'll get to how that changed at 25. But so I was seven years old when my symptoms started. I knew about endometriosis when I was nine, because that's when my mom was diagnosed. And then my symptoms became apparent at my very first menstrual cycle when I was 14. Um, so I had adenomyosis as well. Um, so my periods would be extremely painful. I would pass blood clots the size of ping pong balls. Um, my period would be anywhere from 12 to 24 days long per month. I was on birth controls, you name it. I've been on it. Um, I've been on birth controls since I was 14. They would shorten my cycle down to about nine to 12 days. 
Um, the shortest period I think I can ever remember having was seven days. And that was like amazing. The time mine was going longer as well. I started having it for like eight yeah. to 10 days and I was like, what the hell is this? Like, I yeah. can't do this. So for you to be experiencing it with 12 to 20, that is painful. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. It was crazy. Um, so yeah, I tried pretty much every medication birth controls would work for like the short term they would work for about six to 12 months and then they would just kind of stop and the pain would come back and the bleeding would increase and we would be back to all of that um i was chronically constipated my entire life thank you endo Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) which then you know painful bowel movements and all of that Mm -hmm. kind of all ended up being in the same category Um, it took five and a half years to be diagnosed and that was with that was five and a half years of going into doctor's offices with my mom and essentially saying, her saying, I have endo. She has all the symptoms of endo. So she has endo. Why does it take, I don't understand. How, why does it take them so long? This is the age old question. And this is what we are fighting for, really. Yep. And then my, my maternal grandmother also had cycle issues right. but her generation never talked about things like that so my mom does know that after my mom was born she underwent a hysterectomy um, due to her prolonged cycles and painful periods but obviously back then things weren't where they are now um, so we're pretty positive that my maternal grandmother also had endo so I ended up being diagnosed at 19 and then essentially it just put me The diagnosis didn't really do much, like you had said, like it's just the beginning of your journey, really. Mm -hmm. Um, All it really changed was I ended up getting bumped into another category of medications. Um, So then I started getting into like Danazol, which is essentially testosterone, and essentially they just upped upped the ante of what medication to try next. So that kind of went on up until I was 24. And then in and around the age of 24, the birth control I was on, I was on it for two and a half years and it worked phenomenal, but then it got discontinued. And so I said, you know what? I've been on medications for 11 years at this point. Like, let's just give my body a break and see what happens. Nine months later, I ended up being pregnant with my son. I know, which I was told would never happen. Yeah, that is an actual <laughs> miracle. Yeah, which is crazy. And then so once I had him, once I delivered him, that's when my my UTI stopped. So I had, yeah, so I don't know what correlation that had or shift or whatever, but for some reason after I, I delivered him, my chronic UTIs resolved themselves somehow. Um or it just moved endo elsewhere. I don't know. <laughs> With endo, you just don't know, do you? <laughs> I don't know. Um, and then when he turned a year, we figured if we can do it once, we could do it again. Um, so when he was 15, no, yep, he was 15 months and we got pregnant with my second son. Wow. So, after, and thankfully I had boys. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, that's something that a lot of people, women we end up probably thinking about. Like, I don't want this horrible disease to be passed on to my child. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I was petrified. Mm. 
Um, Cause when we got pregnant with my first son, like I was told since the age of, you know, 19, you know, it's going to be really difficult for you to have children. Mm-hmm. So then we, I've been with my husband since we were 17. Okay. Um, he had known about this through the whole thing. So I essentially had said, you know, kids might not be in our future. So take it or leave it. And he said, that was fine. And we started planning, you know, travel and (laughs) things we wanted to do. And so then unexpectedly getting pregnant is is crazy. It's a whirlwind. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so then after I had my second son, um, I went in because at that point I had exhausted all all potential birth control options. So after I had my second son, I had done literally every single birth control out there and I didn't want to have more kids. So my mom had underwent a endometrial ablation where they burn back the lining of your uterus um, and she had her her tubes tied. So I had said, well, you know what? That worked really great for my mom. It stopped her bleeding, all of that stuff. So I'll go in and get that done. I had that done and did nothing. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, it did nothing. The difference though being is my mom, when she had hers done, she was 46 and they took an ovary. So then essentially like you're already pre-menopausal. Yeah, menopausal, yeah, true. Right? So that kind of, you know, she wasn't 27. <laughs> <laughs> so then six months later after that, I had made the decision because um, nothing with my pain or my bleeding or anything changed at mm-hmm. all. And up until this point, I was still under the care of a gynecologist. I was never made aware about endosurgeons and excision until I was 28 years old and I started reaching out to the endometriosis community online. Hmm. My goodness. Hence why I went through all of these botched surgeries Mm -hmm. that didn't do anything. So when I was 28, I... So six months after um, my tubal ligation and my endometrial ablation, I decided to undergo a hysterectomy because at that point I was suspected for adenomyosis. I was already sterile and wasn't going to have kids anymore anyways. So please just take it. Um, So she took cervix, uterus, both tubes and my right ovary because my right ovary had um, scarring from recurrent cysts on it. And all of my pain was always right-sided. But I kept my left ovary so that I would um, avoid having to utilize hormone replacement therapy. Yeah. Right. And then um, shortly, shortly after my hysterectomy is when I started to realize that there's such a thing as excision surgery and the difference between an endosurgeon and a gynecologist and all of that stuff. So my mind was blown at that point. However, at that time, everything was fine for the most part. So my bleeding stopped. Most of my pain resolved because I think a lot of my pelvic pain was mainly adeno because um, my endo really only affected like my bowel movements and my urination, okay. right? Where my adeno symptoms, like it gave me intense cramping insane vaginal downward pressure like it was just awful six months post hysterectomy Mm -hmm. I started to experience thoracic symptoms so I started to experience this weird 
feeling of chest pains and not being able to breathe. And so it would just, it would happen randomly. But prior to my hysterectomy, I have tracked everything my entire life. Since the moment I was 14 years old, I would have a book beside my bed and I would write down my periods in it. How long they were, the pain level, clots, no clots. So when all of these things started happening, because I had no period to base it off of anymore, I was like, I'm going to start tracking this and writing it down and just see if there's a correlation to something. So I started writing it down and then probably about three, four months into it, I kind of put it on a calendar and I looked back and it fell into a cycle of being 14 days apart of symptoms. Oh my God. So I was like, okay, so there's your ovulation and there's your cycle. And I actually put it into a period tracker app as well, just to see how that would work out. And it essentially aligned perfectly. So then that's when I started reaching out more into the endometriosis community and trying to gain more insight Mm -hmm. onto can endometriosis affect your lungs? Because I had no idea it was a thing. I know. Like seriously, (laughs) I think the scariest for me has been that it can affect your brain. It can affect your nostril. Like it can come up. Like I can't even, I don't. (sighs) Yeah been found every in every organ except for your spleen Mm. it's crazy Crazy. so I ended up going to my family doctor and I had said and I had done I had done a very small amount of research at this point I did enough that I was like this is what I have I don't know how it works but this is what I got Mm. so I went and I had said to him I am pretty positive that I have thoracic endometriosis I need to be referred back to my gynecologist in order to be referred to an endosurgeon and he had told me that thoracic endometriosis is impossible as endo cannot reside outside the pelvic cavity and what I was experiencing was hormonally induced anxiety attacks I've never been diagnosed with anxiety in my entire life (laughs) So he gave me a prescription for Ativan and Zoloft and sent me on my way and he refused to send me to my gynecologist. So at that point, I was willing to try anything. So when I would go into a thoracic flare, I'd pop Ativan's like they're candy, but it did nothing. So I'm like, clearly this is nothing. This isn't what that Mm -hmm. is. So then I called, I ended up calling his office a couple days after that appointment and I I lied about why I needed to go see my gynecologist. Mind you, this has been my gynecologist since I was 19 years old. And I had to fight to get back to her. So I called and I have essentially said, well, you know, like after my hysterectomy, I'm just experiencing some more pelvic pain. Um, I would just like to go back to her to talk about how my surgery went and the possibility of sending me to an excision surgeon. Because at this point now I knew what excision was. So then he finally sent me to her. I waited. I walked into her office, essentially. I was there for three minutes. I said, these these are my calendars of my symptoms. This is what I think I have. These are all of my symptoms in a whole. I need to go see an endosurgeon. And she's lovely. She said, I'm calling him on my lunch break personally. That's awesome. Yeah. So I got into him within three and a half months of seeing her. 
and then it was it was a back and forth year of going between seeing my endosurgeon and seeing my thoracic surgeon and then um kind of collaborating together in order to get their schedules aligned to do a collaborative surgery. Cause I had said, you know, my thoracic surgeon knows the area. My endosurgeon knows the disease yeah. I have disease in my pelvis anyway. So why don't we just do a two for one surgery yeah. and get it done and over with while I was waiting that year. Cause at this point in time, this was just over a year ago. It was, it was rough. It was really bad. Um, so I was on Oralissa for 10 months while I waited for that surgery to get organized. Cause if I didn't have something to help me, I, yeah, I would have been out of commission essentially. Did you have any side, like, um, clear side effects from Oralissa? Yeah. So I had done in the beginning, I did two months of Lupron with Adback and it was horrible. Yeah. It was absolutely horrible. Um, it took away all of my endo symptoms, but the side effects were worse to deal with. Um, I like with the Lupron, it was night sweats and dizziness and fatigue and depression and anxiety yeah. and nausea and lack of appetite and zero sex drive. And I was, I was physically here, but I was a shell of a person. Wow. So I had said, you know what? I've dealt with this disease my entire life. I can handle the disease. I can't handle all of this. this extra, yeah. So then when I had gone back to him after two months of being on or, or Lupron, it would have been time for my third injection. And I said, I can't do it anymore. And at that point, Oralissa had just been released the month prior in Canada. Okay. So he said, well, you can try this see how this works if it ends up being the same because it's a pill just stop taking it so i said okay well that's you know at this point i'm willing to do anything in order to cope um while things are because things move very slowly in canada things <laughs> things go things go very slow here <laughs> even here honestly yeah like i have friends in the states and they're like they're in for a consultation. They're on an OR table within four months. And I'm like, what? Yeah, I think, it, I don't know about Canada, but I think it has to do with the fact that in the UK, it's the NHS. So, yes. oh my God, like. Well, so we're very similar. Like we have nationalized free yeah. healthcare. They say free. <laughs> I use this, I'm using air quotes. I use this term loosely. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a big factor. Definitely. Yeah. A hundred percent. So the Oralissa, the 150 that I was on, um, I essentially stayed on that for about 10 months. Okay. And it, I didn't have very many side effects from it. I had um, a few night sweats a couple times a month and that was about it. But it helped me manage. It was by far from fantastic. Um, I was still very symptomatic on it. I ended up doing a science experiment with myself and I took myself off of it because I didn't feel like it was doing anything. Yeah. And so my flares on it ended up being my every day off of it. Right. So when I wasn't on it, the way that I would flare while I was on the medication which would happen like every three days at this point. Um, 
would be my every single day off of it. Plus I would flare on top of that. So it was doing something, but it was far from amazing. And then halfway through when I had said, I don't feel like it's doing anything. We ended up doubling the dosage to 300 milligrams because this was before the 200 milligrams, two times a day got released in Canada. So then when I doubled it, I had all the, it did great for my symptoms, but then I had all the same side effects as Lupron. Oh, no. I was like, nope, not doing that. I'll drop back down. Right. Yeah. So it helped me manage and it helped me function. Okay. But it was far from a great treatment of relief. <laughs> as it is, and, and realistically, as we all know in this community, it's a band-aid solution. Yeah, definitely. You know, and I've been very, very open on my social media about my journey with Oralissa because I was one of the first few people in Canada to be on it. Um, so I was just like, I'm bringing y'all along with yeah. me to see how this goes. Because I, I feel like I utilized it in the sense of how it's supposed to be used. Short term, utilize it as a bridge if you want to. It's everybody's choice to do whatever they want to do and go on whatever they want to go on but prolonged use of any type of medication is obviously not yeah yeah so I went on it to help me manage while I waited for the gold standard of care of excision surgery yeah. right? right wow yeah so that's <laughs> I think I'm I'm still reeling from the fact that you said you, your, your symptoms started at seven like that's no way for any young girl to to leave no anyway it got to the point I think I want to say I was probably about 13 or 14 and for some reason I was never referred to a urologist either and I asked my mom that now and I'm like why was I never sent to a urologist and she's like I have no idea yeah that's what it is it's it's basically I think in this situation it's almost like ignorance is bliss even though you are going through the pain and everything but they're just we're just not aware like everyone even my mom was like what why didn't I know or you know but you can't beat yourself up you just have to move on no absolutely this is very important like you're raising awareness talking about it everyone just you know everyone around you probably knows about it now so they sure do. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, I'm sorry, but am I talking about endo too much? <laughs> Not like I'm going to change. I'm always talking about it. <laughs> I really can't help you. <laughs> but you know what? Like, if you if you've never experienced it, mm-hmm. then you know it's you don't you don't get it, and that's why this community is so amazing. Like, I started my social media page when I was in the middle of my thoracic endometriosis battle, essentially. And I was just like, what is this? I got so much information from Wendy who runs the extra pelvic knot rare Facebook page group. She's friggin' phenomenal. And if I didn't have the community behind me and the people around me to help educate me and find those steps, I wouldn't be where I am now. And I started my page in social media to try and find, as funny as this is, to try and find just one person, just somebody else in the world who's going through Mm -hmm. this, to try and be like, hey, 
like you have this and I have this. So now I'm not crazy or alone and somebody actually gets yeah. it. And then now what it's turned into is the complete opposite. Of yeah, that. you are the one. Yeah, the source of strength for a lot of women. So that's yeah so now i have women reaching out to me saying help me and don't let me feel so alone which is amazing and i love how when things come full circle but that's what i mean if i didn't have if we didn't have this information in the community mm -hmm. online i feel like we would all just still be wondering what to do next yeah exactly so now that it's all i'll say well i wouldn't say it's over because we we know what endo is but now that you've yeah. um, gone through the surgery, the excision surgery, um, how yeah. has, would you say your life has changed? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> like silly question. <laughs> so I am only six weeks post-op, but um, it's, it's been, it's been insane. I have people ask me regularly, like, how are you feeling now? And I'm like, I haven't felt this good in three years. Wow. Which is insane. I still become symptomatic. Mm -hmm. um, I still get random symptoms, usually when I do too much or if I've had a really busy day. Okay. But that's fairly normal up until about like six to eight months post-op. Because obviously, like, there's a lot of healing that yes. is happening <laughs> in, in there. Yeah. And like, so they had resected, my thoracic surgeon had resected um, endo cells out of my thorax. So I have currently have staples in my diaphragm, like on the anterior side of my diaphragm. Um, so obviously when, you know, I do too much, all of that kind of gets inflamed and mm -hmm. they had said that it'll take a few, uh, usually a few months to heal mm -hmm. and calm down. Okay. Wow. And yeah, it's crazy. And how, how about your family? How have their lives basically been impacted from watching you when you were in pain to now that you are, you know, hopefully symptom-free, mostly? <laughs> Honestly, even if I become, I know, fingers crossed, even if I become symptomatic, like, you know, for an hour once every five days, I'll take it. I know. Because I at the point where I could barely function um with my family it did a lot of damage I won't lie um well in general life family friends I lost friendships for the fact that I was I was no longer able to put anybody before myself um my needs ended up coming first and everything extra just went out the window essentially so I didn't have the ability to manage and maintain every single one of my friendships that I had been able to manage and maintain prior. Mm. Um, but then in the same sense, it kind of opens your eyes and shows you about all of the amazing friendships that you do have around yep. you. Definitely. With the ones that stuck through and stay with yeah. you through it all. Um, my husband ended up having to take on a lot. Oh, I know, <laughs> they, they suffer the most, don't they? They, they really do. <laughs> We need to make like endo husband support groups. <laughs> a lot of beer involved. Endo husbands unite. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. He took on a lot. I essentially was able to manage my work day. Um, I would help prep dinner and then make the kids lunches. And then I was in bed by about 6.30 most nights just because I couldn't physically manage mm. to do any more. 
Um, but I pushed myself a lot. <laughs> I would, I pushed myself. I'm a firm believer in, I'm really stubborn. So even, even prior to all of my thoracic symptoms, I would never let it dictate what I did in a day. Um, so in that, I pushed myself a lot to try and help even out the balance of home and kids with my husband. Yeah. Because as hard as it was, I didn't, I felt guilty of putting it all on him. Mm, I know that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's hard, especially when prior to all of this, you know, I enjoy cooking and taking care of the kids and making their lunches and doing their homework and all of that stuff with them. And then essentially it gets ripped out from you. So my kids, it also affected them a lot, to be honest. Um, I would go into the bath as that's where I usually would live. <laughs> and then they, and they would come in and kiss my head and ask if I'm okay. And if I can breathe today, they were so sweet. Um, but honestly, they're the most like caring and compassionate little boys. And so I honestly feel that watching me struggle for the last three years has helped shape yeah. them into that. That's amazing. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. And it was like, it was, I, I broke down in the hospital after surgery because my husband had brought the kids to come visit me um, the day after. Mm. And my oldest son walks in and he gives me a big hug. And he said, the first thing he says to me is, so mommy, this means you're going to be fun again. Oh my God. Oh, yeah. that would make me cry. I know. So it was so sweet. <laughs> so sweet. Yeah. They, I think it sometimes was... I even feel the, the pain. I forget about my pain and I just look at them, my family, and I'm like, they must, because they can't, they don't know the feeling, but they can just see you in pain yeah. and they feel helpless. They don't know what to do. And that was a lot of it too. Like my husband and even my kids, like they would constantly be like, you know, almost torn and heartbroken over the fact that there was nothing that they could do to help, mm -hmm. exactly. you know? Yeah. So we always have to remember that they are going through, you know, something on our behalf as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So um, let's talk about diet and let's just yeah. talk about, alternative medicine yeah right so we all know that endometriosis requires a an integrative approach <laughs> and yeah. even though excision is gold standard of treatment um you know there's a lot of um information and advice about diet and you know exercise yeah. meditation chinese all of that do you do anything like that do you incorporate that into your lifestyle and uh, what's what's it I like I do. Um, so I have been vegan for four and a half years, uh, mainly due to endo symptoms creating chronic constipation. So even prior to excision, mm -hmm. uh, I was, I found that dairy and meat would, it was almost like my body just wouldn't digest it. Right. Um, it was awful. So then um, I just ended up cutting it all out. I was never a big dairy and meat person to begin okay. with. Um, so to cut it out wasn't a huge deal for me. Both of my boys are also sensitive to dairy. So we are a dairy-free house. So it made it really easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so I'm gonna obviously continue with that. Just it's been working for almost five years. And obviously, as we know, red meat and dairy are inflammatory foods, which aren't great either. Um, I am wanting to get more involved with doing some yoga. Um, I'm under the care right now of a naturopath who specializes in um, balancing and dealing with female hormone, hor female <laughs> hormones only. Um, so I'm doing a lot of stuff with her as well, with some supplements and kind of some follow-up. I've only seen her once though, because I wanted to wait until I was like a little bit healed from surgery yeah. before I start jumping mm -hmm. in and doing the hormone thing. Because I just got off GNRH medications okay. that I was on for a year as well. So waiting for kind of all of that to die down. Um, but yeah, and then obviously I'll probably end up looking into acupuncture as well. Mm -hmm. Because um, I've heard that that's really fantastic. Yeah, I've heard that too. And did you do all, yeah. anything, um, any pelvic therapy? I did. I went, I went, I would probably say about five times prior to surgery. My surgeon had recommended it. Um, and I was actually interested in it prior to him recommending it. Um, I just never ended up going. So then when I knew surgery was coming up, I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to do this. And honestly, my pelvic floor wasn't horrible. Okay. So I went about four or five times. And then even after that, she was kind of like, well, you know, it's your choice if you want to come back. Um, so I felt like everything was pretty good. Okay. Yeah. But yes, I have heard that pelvic floor can be absolutely phenomenal for pelvic. Yeah. Pain. Yeah. I've tried it as well. I've, I did a few yeah. sessions and it was really good. But I think um, yeah. what's more important um, than going to a therapist is learning, you know, how it works and then going home and doing some of those exercises on your own and making it part of your lifestyle. And I still do all of the exercises yeah, exactly. she tells me about. Yeah, that's it really. Because you can I can't really afford to do it do those sessions like for a long time. Yeah, because it is it does. It gets really expensive over time. Like because we have like I'm lucky I have I have benefit coverage through my husband's work, which is great, but even at that it only covers up to a maximum amount. Yeah. And if you surpass that, you're having to pay out of pocket. Yeah. True. You know, so it does, it can get costly. Yeah. So let's talk about raising awareness. <laughs> like you said in your post, um, sometimes it just gets tiring. And it feels like an uphill battle. It feels like you'll never end. And sometimes I just want to be loved. I don't want to care. I don't want to love someone. I don't want to help. I just want someone to help me. So how do you deal yeah. with how do you bring yourself back up? How do you remind yourself that, you know, it's for the greater good or how do you most keep yourself motivated in, in this race? <laughs> right. And it's so true. Um, and I'm honestly slowly getting myself back out of that. Um, cause the last few weeks, obviously, you know, cause you're following me on social media. Yeah. Um, I did, I went through a tug of war with myself just, the mental thought process of thinking, oh, you can't make a change. You're just one person. Yeah. It's such a bigger systemic issue. Like what am I going to be able to do with that? Um, you know, when you look at it as a whole picture and honestly it's defeating, like it is so defeating. There are times where it is so defeating. 
Um, but taking small breaks from it, I think is imperative as we had talked, um, you know, earlier. And it's like, well, I have to post something every day or I have to post something every two days, or I have to, you know, check in all my messages and all of that. It's like, it's great for six months and then your fire starts to yeah, go out. Because yeah, definitely. It can easily turn into a full-time job, mm -hmm. which is crazy. Um, so I find taking much needed breaks is really good. I, I've done it. I've, I've, I'm slowly coming back into it, but I did, I had to pull myself out from it for, you know, a few days at a time, um, just to give myself the break because it can honestly become consuming. Yeah. Um, and then finding things that you enjoy outside of endo is also so imperative. Yep. Um, so like, as some of my followers have started to notice, like I am now talking about makeup. Yeah, I noticed as well. <laughs> <laughs> because it's something, it's something that I enjoyed so much prior to the last three years where endo consumed me and took everything away from mm -hmm. me. Um, so now it's like, it's trying to find those small things that I used to enjoy, or I'm finding out that now I enjoy yeah. and kind of focus on that at the same time. So even on my social media, I'm like, well, I want to talk about makeup too. So we're going to talk about yeah. <laughs> deal with it. <laughs> yes. Um, but I do find as well at the same time, and I have to remind myself of this often, that I find we spend so much time focusing on the mountains ahead of us that we often forget to turn around and look at how big the mountains are behind yeah. us. And trying to do that when you're feeling defeated is important because you're looking at these, you know, these mountains ahead of you. And it's just like, I, like, I just, I don't know if I can accomplish that. I don't know if I can get through that. Yeah. And then it's like that little voice in your head and it's like, but look at what you've already done so yeah. far. Yeah, that's the best advice. That is, I'm going to yeah. use that. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> You're allowed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much. So give me one final advice for Endo Warriors who are in different stages of their journey. Yes. Um, keep fighting, keep searching for answers, and keep searching for the right doctor. Know that you are so far from alone and find endo warriors and advocates via social media because this community is built up with so much love and strength and compassion. Yeah. I wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't have this community. And as you, I'm sure feels the same Definitely. way and other ones of us who are essentially now immersed in the community. Mm -hmm. So get yourself immersed in the community if you haven't already. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, I'd love to know. Send me comments or even a DM through my Instagram or Facebook page. Share with your friends and subscribe to the podcast. If you also want to be a guest on the show to share your story and be a voice as we advocate for women all over the world, I would love to have you. Send me an email at info at notdefinedbyendo.com. If you have any questions or topics you would like me to discuss, feel free to shoot me an email or message me on social media. All of this information can be found in the show notes. Until next time, my name is Teniela and remember, you are not defined by endo.